I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Tonight, uh, it's our very great pleasure to welcome Helen Simpson and Michelle Roberts. Helen Simpson was described in the pages of the LRB as being one of those writers who make a virtue of reality by improving on it. Um, she's the author of six collections of short stories, and her latest book, A Bunch of Fives, um, selects some of um, the best from, from those. Um, reviewing it in The Guardian last week, Nick Lezard wrote, Simpson is the writer who most famously went where male writers were either too frightened or too bored to tread examining the ever-after that follows the happy ending. Um, Helen's co-locutor this evening is Michelle Roberts, the author of many highly acclaimed novels as well as poetry and short stories. Her latest book, um, just published, um, is Ignorance, a novel set in German-occupied France. Um, Let me give you another review of hers as well from Helen Dunmore in The Guardian, um, who praised Michelle Roberts as a magnificent writer of the body. Few novelists can match her sense of what it is to live in the flesh. Throughout their careers, both Helen and Michelle have excelled in their descriptions of women, and it is women as writers, as characters in literature, and perhaps also as readers, who provide us with a broad theme for the evening. Um, Helen and Michelle will talk for about 40 minutes, and then um, we'll throw it open to the audience, so do think about any questions or contributions you want to make. Um, There'll be more wine afterwards, buying and signing of books, um, but for now, please join me in welcoming um, Michelle Roberts and Helen Simpson. Thank you very much for that beautiful introduction. Thanks to the LRB Bookshop for inviting us to be here. And of course, thanks to all of you for coming to be with us here. We're delighted to see so many of you on such a beautiful evening. What we think we might do is begin with a a really small reading by each of us, just to give you a flavour of the, the kind of writing we do. Then we're going to converse in a completely um, busking it way. Like, we've got notes, but we won't stick to them. We'll probably just... (laughs) We haven't planned it. We haven't planned anything. And and then, as Laura said, talk to you. Or you talk to us. So, I'm going to read you the opening page and a half of Ignorance, because it introduces some of the themes um, around writing and storytelling that, that we want to talk about tonight. So... The person here who's recounting, um, she's looking back from a long time afterwards. She's called Jeanne. So it's a sort of memoir that that she's writing or speaking. The first time I tried to use paints in his studio, I didn't know where to begin. 
at the edge of the paper in the center, he shouted, just get going, just make a mark. Smudges of black and white and gray, the colors of that winter afternoon when I spoke to him for the first time. The man Marie-Angèle called the mad hermit. If he'd glanced out from his garden at the school building, shearing up next door like a cliff, he might have noticed Marie-Angèle and me, two children peeping out of a high window, two white dabs of faces. He did see us. He waited for us. He knew that sooner or later we'd come. A black and white feather began it, a magpies perhaps. We called the novices magpies, black habits and white veils, the nuns in plain black, holy crows or holy hens. The young curé strutting plumply among us with pursed lips and folded arms was Chanticleer from Marie-Angèle's storybook. The nuns pecked and flapped to his attention, his words of wisdom. With Marie-Angèle and myself, he didn't have to pretend to be cleverer than he really was. He told us about his two little sisters back home whom he missed. He said they liked licorice and aniseed balls. He told us jokes too and blushed that we found them so funny. The feather came spiraling down out of the sky twisting and turning on a current of air. From the dormitory window, standing on chairs so that we could see out, we watched the little plume swivel and drift above the garden wall. Later, Mother Lucy asked me, what happened? I hadn't the words to tell her. How could I know the words to say? They'd have been the wrong ones, fetched me a slap. I'll read from a story called Festival of the Immortals, I think, just a scrap because we're into the season of literary festivals. I'm off to Hay at the weekend. Um, and it's big business. Um, let's see. We've got Viv and Phyllis, who are both in their 70s. They've met each other in the Cape Tent, one of the festivals, at this Festival of the Immortals. And um, let's... <laughs> now, Viv says... Let's see, what about your daughter, though? Didn't you mention a daughter? Yes, said Phyllis, blinking. Sarah, she went into the book business. In fact, she's the one who dreamt up the idea behind this festival, and now she runs it. Artistic director of the Festival of Immortals. That's her title. Good Lord, said Viv. The opportunities there are for girls these days. It's a full-time, year-round job, as you can imagine, said Phyllis, gaining confidence. She spent months this year trying to persuade Shakespeare to run a workshop. The most she could get him to do was half-promise to give a masterclass in the sonnet. He's supposed to be arriving by helicopter at four this afternoon, but it's always touch and go with him, she says. It's impossible to pin him down. Good Lord, said Viv again, and listened enthralled as Phyllis told her anecdotes from previous years. The time Rabbi Burns had kept an adoring female audience waiting 40 minutes and had eventually been tracked down to the stationery cupboard deep in Congress, or whatever he called it, with Sarah's young assistant, Sophie. <laughs> Then there was the awful day Sarah had introduced a reading as being from the floss on the mill. And George Eliot had looked so reproachful, even more so than usual. But Sarah did tend to reverse her words when flustered. It wasn't intentional. Every year, Alexander Pope roared up in a fantastic, high-powered, low-slung sports car. Always a new one. Always the latest model. Everybody looked forward to that. Jane Austen could be very sarcastic in interviews if you asked her a question she didn't like. She'd said something very rude to Sarah last year, very cutting, when Sarah had questioned her on what effect she thought being fostered by a wet nurse had had on her. Because, of course, that was what people were interested in now, that sort of detail. There was no getting away from it. 
<laughs> Helen, that's a brilliant introduction. I'm going to follow it up immediately with my first question to you, which is a very earnest and possibly pompous question, but I don't care. I want to ask you about the literary tradition you think you may have grown up in, because that story beautifully adduces, doesn't it, some of the, the, the great writers that probably everybody in this, this room um, began reading at, at school, perhaps later at university as well. Mm -hmm. I think reading your work that you may have begun as someone who took on a much more recent writer such as Angela Carter, and I just wondered whether that does chime for you as a reference. What, the, the tradition of Angela Carter? Well, I wondered whether you feel that She's there at the end of that tradition of, you know, all those amazing men and women of the 17th, 18th, 19th oh, she centuries. Is. Yes, I yeah. see what you mean. Yeah. Yes. So she, she was incredibly well read mm. and used, used it. it was very referential in the way she worked, I think. Um, there's, there's, there's enough material in her novels to keep research students going forever because mm. you, you could annotate one of her stories and take two years on it, I think. Mm. Every, every phrase is, is, mm. is sort of referring to something. It's, it's elusiveness, I suppose. Mm. Um, and I do love that in some writers. I, I'm thinking about I the voice as well, actually. Re reading this wonderful mm -hmm. selection, there's a very early story, um, a 17th century woman speaking... And there's that sense of kind of the stamp of the foot and the, the flounce of the skirt and the rebellious hoydenish voice. And I just wondered whether... Well, that was my homage to... I, I did um, a, a um, research degree, an MLIT, on restoration farce. Right. I, I'd started off wanting to do it on Congreve, but he'd been dumb. And then <laughs> you spend the first term of research trying to find something that hasn't been done. So I've worked through all the... You know, and, and farce was all that people had left because most of the farces are just appalling and they're three pages long and they consist of he trips over a joint stool, someone farts, you know, and it's just, it just stage directions. But I did, I mean, I read a lot of, I loved that restoration, that new modern note. It's coming on after the mm. Elizabeth, but, you know, it's, it's, mm. and it's, so, uh, but it, it's just extraordinary. It's the first modern note where you get, the, I think, the dialogue between the sexes as well. Right. So and I'm probably wrong then. I was thinking you were getting that filtered through Carter, but you'd gone back oh, to no, the source. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. Because I'd... I'd um, well, I did English Lit at university, yeah. and I'd always loved it at school and, mm. and read round, and, and um, yes, they, they, they felt like my friends. I just, yeah. I just did... I, I really lived in books. I, I read mm. like a complete... For those years at university, I loved the reading. I just... Mm. I'm just hoping old age is going to be like that if my eyes last. I want to get back to that sort of blinkers on and read for hours and hours, but um, it's not possible at various points in life, I find. Well, I think a lot of your work, if we moved on to the, sort of the next two collections where you're using all that comedic sense about, about motherhood, I mean, there's one tale of a, of a girl who just yeah, reads all the time. And, of course, we know that voices in novels or short stories are not autobiographical, but you have just said that's the kind of girl you were. I was very, very taken with one of your heroines who, as a teenager, just all she does is read. She doesn't want ever to do anything else. And then suddenly you're making these descriptions of women who've, who've got married and, and had children and living in these quite enclosed little family worlds. And they might live in rooms walled with books, but they don't read anymore. 
And I found that shattering. Um, as well, it's very funny the way you describe it. But mm. well, talk a bit that, about that. I think that's that. That was my third collection, um, called Hey Yeah Right Get a Life, which. Which is something a small child will say to its mother when the, when the mother says, "Now eat your carrots up." They'll say, "Yeah, right, get a life." Um, so it's but it's it's a good irony because in the Elizabethan sense, you have got a life. It's getting a life, and in America, when it came out in America, they changed it to the title to "Getting a Life," which oh, is what, yeah. and you know, when in Shakespeare's sonnet, he talks mm. about getting a life, and. Mm. Unfortunately, these days, it meant it got into the self-help sections in America and didn't really work very well. <laughs> it's a nasty surprise for someone. <laughs> um, but the domesticity, that's... I mean, that, again, is... Well, I was, ju- I was writing, because it's, it's... It's not being much written about in, in, way, in a way that I wanted to read. And it is very hard to write well about something that's pretty wordless and boring a lot of the time, a sort of sigh and plod, you know, and, 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 uh, and not, not thought of as important. But then it's, I think it what's interesting though is that, yeah. sorry, I know I'm interrupting mm-hmm. you, but you're coming after a generation of women writers, say from the 70s, who were, I think, voicing all kinds of rage about that condition and situation of women's isolation and loneliness and, you know, lack of help or support. Mm-hmm. Um, who are we thinking of? Margaret well, Drabble and... Margaret Drabble, but then I'm thinking coming on to yes, A.S. Byatt, and I'm thinking of someone like Faye Weldon. Yes. Because she, she believed in making, I think, grotesque comedy um, out of the domestic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting. I think a lot of women writers have dealt with it, but it's, it's remained a, a sort of no-go area. It's as though that old masculine view of the domestic being boring because it's womanly, because it's connected to the mother... Has, has continued, has re-erupted. And I think that's one of the reasons I've been loving reading these, well, these except, stories. Well, um, except, uh, I think they horrify you too, you were saying. Yes, they horrify me. Well, it's partly yes. because of, it's, it's, everybody wants to get away from their mother, you see, and <laughs> to get back again. Mm. It, it's just, <laughs> I think what horrifies me about these stories, which they come across as written with a, a terrific, bleak comedy, and they come across with a ring of you know, fictional truth. There's nothing uh, in any way uh, overdone or sentimental about them. But I know for a a woman of my generation who was lucky enough to have feminism there and be part of that, we had women friends. And feminism of that wave in the 70s was started by young women who were mothers and who didn't want to be just living in little tiny houses totally separate from each other. Mm -hmm. So the idea was you put your baby on your hip and you went out and you met other people, or you met other women, and there was a sort of a bit of a carnival, and some people actually lived in communes, and you know, mm. tried to invent different ways of being. But the great lifeline was your women friends. You could always get on the phone, or with luck, see them. And I think what frightened me and horrified me about the experience of women like Dory in these stories is that she hasn't got that. All she's got is a husband, and these children who are kind of eating her alive. And I thought, God, this is this is actually what you should give young women to say, don't have babies, read this story, you know, contraception is here. Well, it's, yeah, that's the review said they had a contraceptive effect. But, um, <laughs> you see, the, the thing with that collection was, um, I, I, Dory was one end of the spectrum, and then I had another woman, Nicola Beaumont, who mm. was the other end. She's um, a city lawyer, 
Um, she's got four children, more than Dory, and she manages everything. And she's... <laughs> the interesting thing is, I find that people who've got high-powered jobs, women with high-powered jobs, they like Nicola Beaumont. And the ones, others have said, well, no, Dory, you know, it's, it's Dory, Dory seems to worry people because she's a bit of a, a doormat. <laughs> um, my German publisher said his psychotherapist friends said he thought Dory was appalling, you know, doesn't stand up for herself and stuff. But I, I, I still, I don't know the way, she's, she's not actually a high power, she's, she had a job, she's got a job, she mm. had poor health. Mm. She's caved in a bit. She's working for her husband. But she, she's she's not an extraordinary or you know, she's just average. Yes, I but think she's, she's talking about something that is really important, which is how unselfish are we capable of being, especially perhaps when we have to care for others, whether it's children or relatives or well, what seems unfair. Ill. What seems unfair for Dory is. That she she doesn't mind doing this. She 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 thinks it's necessary, mm. self-sacrifice involved and so on. But um, what it's the fact she's got to keep completely quiet too and mustn't mention any of it and mm. never uh, sort of it's not noticed. It's mm. it's completely invisible, and it's taboo to talk about mm. it. It was then. I mean, you talk about the network, and I do I do think the seventies and communes were, were lovely, but they didn't. It hasn't caught on. Exactly, you know, people are still living in... No, I know, but, but there are but, also friendships. But now... That, Your no, women are so isolated. Oh, no, 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 she's got friendships, but their children they don't are always... speak. Well, they, the ones, the one, they do, they meet, they meet to speak, but if they've got their children with them... Mm, they can't. Then they, uh, the children are there, you mm. see. You, you can't talk much over very small children. Mm. Mm. And it's it sounds like moaning, but that's that's the fact. Of no, it. it doesn't sound like moaning. Mothers it, who do talk a lot, they've got childcare. They they yes. sort of. <laughs> um, yes. I think that's one of the things the novel, the stories are, are saying is that if you haven't got childcare because you haven't got money, then yes, it's going to be very hard. Well, you can you can. It, it depends on where and how you're living. Mm. Um, but now I think Mum's Net, the internet's mm. made a big difference. Yeah. I was yes. just, I've just missed that, damn it. Um, but that, that yeah. seems a very positive um, improvement on things. And, that, you know, that you can, that women do get, they, they do all the time, but it's... I feel the other end of that, which again, you know, I'm, I'm in a way aghast by the Dory's total, total self-abnegation. It's as though, yes, she doesn't know about feminism. She doesn't know about Winnicott saying, you know, you can be a good enough mother. But... Nonetheless, she's there. She's, she's, she's raising something which is, I think, quite taboo to be talked about, which is what motherhood can actually feel like. I, I think something else you're talking about, motherhood, which is perhaps equally taboo, but it's, it's very beautiful, is the incredible sensual relish women have for their children and for their children's bodies. And there are lots of passages in these stories where women, almost secretly, they're kind of nuzzling their babies and just burying their faces in their little bodies and snuffing them up and sometimes the husbands are getting a bit annoyed and they're sort of rooting around under the duvet and saying what are you up to down there and mm. the woman's kind of nuzzling her little baby <laughs> and I thought that was wonderful to to raise that um, that image of the sensuality of motherhood that it isn't all just service it's well, no, also I'm about not... voluptuous self-abandon yes. into a desire really I can say that book was more political than I thought it would be. Mm. I, I hadn't realised it would be. Um, 
its reception seemed to do very much, I found, that the critic, uh, where they happened to be in their reproductive life on the political front. I, the American, when it came out in America, there was um, the publicist was um, a girl in her 20s, and she, she, she was, you know, she gave me questions to answer. You have to do these questions so that they can send it out as publicity. But hers were all appalled, you know. Has she gained or lost by this experience of having babies? <laughs> and I found myself sort of thinking, snapping back, it's not a consumer experience, you know, it's not sort of, I'll mark this out of ten, or oh, that wasn't worth doing. Um, she doesn't really know. It's just life, it's, it's, and, and it'll change. And at this particular stage, she's having a hard time, maybe she'll learn to do it better. Maybe she'll learn to be less of a doormat, you know, maybe she'll factor in, or, or else... If I did Dorian a novel, I think she'd carry on and have a breakdown of some sort, and then, you know, then she'd get acupuncture and a nice. Somebody would help her and say, "You've got to put yourself." Then it's it's just it's just an average story. It's, mm. it's one of the stories. The other story is Nicola Beaumont's. I'd be interested to know what happened to her. Mm. I think mm. she'd probably be. Um, well, she goes around the world a lot now. I think. <laughs> I think mm. what's what's emerged from very early on is the important role of comedy in your writing and um, was that something that just arrived and you realised you know this is this is me this is how I do things this I is like what comedy. I love I yeah. like I like I going like, back to those restoration farces or, yeah I like yes. wit as well yes. and and also the form I think the shorter you write the more compressed and yes. it, it does it encourages jokes yes in a way yes, yes. It's also a very, very good way of containing rage, I think. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was one of the delights of these stories, that even though I was <laughs> anguished and upset by the Doris of this world, I didn't lie on the floor and bang my head on the carpet because you're telling me to laugh all the time. You're making me laugh all the time. There's always a moment when you get so close to some kind of despair or you think, surely some rage, and then round the corner you go, a very deft flick of your rattly whip and, and I'm roaring with laughter and that's, that's wonderful that's why I think Michelle that, um, it, I've been thinking about the story form and it seems to me it's best suited to tragic comedy mm. it's, it, that's why people talk about Chekhov so mm. much because and when you think of his plays they, you know, it's the tragic comedy it's, you get people coming onto the stage and say my life is in ruins I think I'll go and kill myself um, and then someone, and they just completely ignored. Everyone ignores them and says, "Have, have a banana or you know." And, they, um, and it's that sort of, it's that sort of tragic yeah. comedy that this, this form's very good for mm. because it's speedier. And mm. I think the, the sort of yes, the, because it's so compacted, it shifts from sentence to sentence. The temperature or it can mm. do. Mm. And I've I've just taken up piano again. Um, I'm not very good at all, but from when I, you know I used to at school, I've been learning a mazurka, mm. a Chopin mazurka, and it's this it, it's going along and it's absolutely um, full of triumph and uh, spirits and all elan. And then there'll be just a note. Yes. And and it it sort of swoops down into into tremendous melancholy, mm. just just not a bar but a, mm. a note, and that's mm. that's the sort of thing you can do in a story, mm. I think. Mm. So perhaps we should do this dialogue that reading from your introduction about short oh, well, stories. This this is um, yeah, it's a selected. Um, so that, this this new book of mine. Um, 
five stories from each of the five collections, so it's a bunch of fives. But um, uh, they asked me to write an introduction to myself, and I thought that would be fine. But then when I sat down, it was much harder than I imagine. Could you write an introduction to yourself? It's, no. If you, if you sit down and think, well, you, you I'd have to put a mask notes, I wrote this. I'd hold up a mask exactly. and then I'd speak. Yes. And I looked at some introductions that people had mm. written. John Cheever had done one to his collected, um, but it was slightly uncomfortable. It was, it was interesting at points, and then it got a bit folksy, sort mm. of, you know, oh, I'm the sort of guy who goes around talking to himself. My doorman said to me the other day. It's, it was... Um, and Laurie Moore, she, she mm. did it for her collected stories. Right, I hadn't seen And she's, she's so tremendously witty and... Mm. and, and but I don't think she can have enjoyed writing that because it started, there was once a writer, it started like a fairy story. Once upon a time, there was a writer who wrote short stories and felt really awkward at having to write an introduction. So she, she'd done that and I, I couldn't do that. So, and then, I don't know, in the night one time, I, I was just lying awake thinking, hmm. And then I thought, why not do it as the hostile questions you get at... at uh, all the sort of nasty things that people might have said over the years or, or the questions you the nasty questions your own mind comes up with at four in the morning so I just did a, a, a batch of really hostile questions but I had time I gave myself time to answer them back so, so, so you know that L'Esprit de l'Escalier well that was that was what yeah, yes. that was fun yeah. and guess who has to be the person who reads out the hostile <laughs> questions no prizes for that one <laughs> okay so where are we going from I think just just short just short because it's about the story okay what, what page are we on XV X, X, yes. right thank you yeah. all right all right, so this is my alter ego. Um, I think I'm going to change sex. I'm a really, really horrible male critic, and I've got a very, very long beard which I keep stroking. You'd agree, though, that the short story is a narrow genre, best kept for little subjects. <laughs> that is such rubbish. Short doesn't have to mean small and slight any more than long means big or profound. The challenge is maximum power for minimum length. But it simply hasn't got the breadth of a novel. Surely you find it limiting. I think a good short story can be like a core sample. Think how much a geologist can learn from a core sample. It's the same. If it's a good one, you've got absolutely everything you need to know about the history and geography and inhabitants and social conditions of the area in wonderfully concise form. That's all very well, but short stories don't sell. They do sell if they're good. If they're good, they sell. But no, they don't sell in anything like the same numbers as novels. In fact, I'll, I mean, I'll pause there. I mean, <laughs> with your novels and your short stories, do, do your short stories sell in the same numbers as your novels? Um, well, I don't really believe in checking sales figures too closely. <laughs> Ever since my father died, I've been let off. He used to ring me up every week and say, now, darling, how many copies of your books did you sell oh, this God. week? How much money have you made and how much did you pay into your pension? <laughs> and um, at his funeral, I was allowed to say, <laughs> so I don't know. But... I was lucky with Mud. It did well. It got reprinted, and it also went into paperback, yes. which well, was lovely. A, but I think maybe yeah. because it's it's very thematically linked, and also it's got a nice subtitle, which is Stories of Sex and Love. Yes. That's quite a good subtitle. It doesn't say sort of carrots and turnips. It does say sex and love. That helped, I think. It is the very variousness. That's the trouble. It's it's hard. It's harder mm. to describe a collection of stories than it is to describe a novel, mm. because there will be. Unless it's very cooked up, there will it, there will be there'll be different subjects. 
And so you'll have to take four or five sentences to describe, you know, someone could describe a novel or the theme of it in, in a sentence. So it's that yeah. that works again. It's harder to publicise. It's a very sort of basic, yeah. um, practical thing, I suppose. But it's harder to review them as well. I, I you... suppose I feel, when I read collections of short stories, which I do with great delight, a great deal, mm. what I'm sensing is a sort of um, subtext, undertow, and music that's very subtle and gentle is, is that sensibility of that writer. So even if yeah. she or he has done 20 goes at something like the bouquet has 20 different flowers in it some of the fact that that writer picked that bouquet i like to to see the connections and i feel yes. they're always there yes. but not always spelt out i think the tide's right. turning for short stories um it used to be the conventional wisdom particularly told to us by our publishers indeed mm-hmm. that short stories don't sell and you know writing students are always told you've got to publish a novel first then you'll be allowed to publish some short, short, short stories. I'm sure many people in this room will twig that one. But so you, you don't see them as your little luxury? No, I see them as... They earn um, their living. They, they earn my, yeah. their, their living, but I'm so interested in the way that the novel and the short story overlap, you see, well, Me too, I want to... Very, see, very yeah. much so. Tell me how. <laughs> well, I wrote a novel called Flesh and Blood, which came out a good 20 years ago, which mm-hmm. is composed of short stories. So it's a novel yes. that... That one gave in... me hope, actually, yes. Oh, good. <laughs> um, and I've written short stories that are many novels because I like having fun with the short story form. So I, I wrote... The a... I mean, the story form, yeah. you, you don't get any chance to get bored, do you? No, you, you don't. You, you, you have fun well, with it. Let's, yeah? let's not right, name names. Some okay. people are boring when they write <laughs> short stories. But no, mm. ideally, mm-hmm. um, no. But I, I think the overlap is really interesting that... It's something about how the imagination works, Helen, I think, because, you know, reading one of your short stories, in my mind it expands. So it's like one of those little scrunched up bits of beautiful Japanese paper and you drop it in your glass of water and you've got this huge flower. And I think... How funny you should say that. I've just, I'm just today doing the last draft of a story called Cake and I've got the Proustian Madeleine, of course, and it's, it's that, going back to read that... Mm. And that it's the Japanese flower. He, he, mm. he, we don't usually get that. We, we have the madeleine and you dip it in the tea. Mm. But he likens that to the Japanese flower yes. put into water and how it opens up and then the next. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, so in, in a uh, sense, although I know for marketing purposes and perhaps even for bookshop shelving purposes, there is this distinction between the, short, the collection of stories and the novel. For, for me as someone who writes both, they overlap a lot. They can be very, very connected. Yes. So that and if I like the sensibility of a writer, I will buy. I mean, the stories mm. with equal or more pleasure than a novel. Very mm. often. I, do you find you find the same? Yes. And it although not quite often, short story writers who cross to novels, though, sometimes it doesn't work. And sometimes there's a sort of resentment waiting for them, mm. you know? I feel that about Angela yeah. Carter, actually. I think yeah. she was a genius at short stories. You wrote a very beautiful introduction to The Bloody Chamber, and that's my favourite of her works. Mm. Um, partly because all the stories are connected, so it's almost like reading a novel, but yes. partly because they're completely brilliant and written in a, an invented poetic prose. It's harsh and cruel and bleak, but very, very beautiful. Mm-hmm. And her novels I do find a bit kind of thigh-slapping and... Circusy and bigger and looser and, and Do you know, I think that I think that I'm not sure about whether that was the form or whether it was the shape of her life because mm. I, I know exactly what you mean. There, there came a 
a point when Mother Goose and the oral tradition mm. and um, the sort of benign voice, the, the Shakespeare novel, and uh, you know that that took over. Whereas the Bloody Chamber, there was a lot of S and M really, and yes. um, it's it's very mm, sadistic and calling on the sort of 1890s and that mm. whole spirit and Baudelaire. Mm. And maybe, I don't know, she got to a certain point. But you see, I don't really, I don't like looking at biographies of people all their lives, but there, there would be a point. I think if you have a baby, it's, it's hard to carry on with the Gothic. Yes. Well, I've said this before, yes. you know, you, you, what do you do? Black nappies, you know, sort of, yes. um, it's, it's, it's to carry well, on with that. Well, safety pins. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think in, about in the same way, because... Mm. I, I think, actually, I don't agree with you about the bloody chamber. I think it's about love, which includes perhaps SM what, what elements. To, yes. But it's because she'd written that book on Dessard on first, Dessart, and it was, which it was is all about horrendous cruelty. Yeah. Then I think she could write the bloody chamber, which is about love and metamorphosis and transformation and imagination. Exactly. And then well, she could it. let that go. It was her way out. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yes. So you felt it was worked through. Yes. Yeah. But and but the baby so made it have a huge effect. Yes. I, yes. All right, well, we've done But she said about um, not, <laughs> the, novel, the novel was a mm. symphony and the stories were um, chamber music. Yes. And I, I, I just, as, as you do, I prefer her chamber music and, because she was mm. such an artist. Mm. You say something very yeah. provocative in, in that um, wonderful dialogue introduction um, be, because of loving the, the concision and compression of the short story. You're a little bit um, oh, about the annoyed with people who sort of say to you, oh, but one day you'll want to write a novel and shouldn't you try and write a novel and you're quite crisp and brisk and <laughs> some novel's just too long, you know, and oh, I liked that. You know, yeah. that's sort of sticking up for the form you, you love. Well, sometimes people do say to you, well, why don't you, you know, as, as though you, you're just too lazy to <laughs> sort of... Uh, but actually, I write loads and, and I, I, I chuck most of it yes. out. That's the trouble. Yes. Um, anyone can just do that. Yes. But you wouldn't get it published if that was all you did, would you? I no, mean, I think no, a novel, exactly. ideally, a novel should be a miracle of compression and, and concision and do that Japanese flower thing just like a short story. That's my idea do of you, a good novel. But I think it's, well, it's, it's written at a, different, but at a bit different pace, don't mm. you think? I, I was thinking it would be too tiring, perhaps, to have. Um, something as compacted, something as essential, all the way through a novel. I um, I th- you might have to read it, perhaps gently, slowly, um, but maybe that suits us as modern people, because <coughs> what strikes me about the short story and its renewed popularity is that it seems to suit a modern sensibility that might just have time you know, on the bus or on the tube or five minutes in the bath or wherever it is, and... I wish I did. I mean, I've, I remember this reading this from various critics in the 40s and 50s when there was that great resurgence of the short story, particularly yes. in America, um, and the New Yorker, and about how modern times are fragmented and we're all mm. we are jangling modern psyches mm. and sort of, you know, we're more suited to that. But actually, people seem to like the less time they've got. The most energetic people I know, mm. they read great fat novels all the time, mm. you know, and they're, they're, um, and they're rushing around all over the place. Mm. They've, they've, they've always got these and... Uh, they, it seems to be a feeling of I've got value for money, partly. Um, That's interesting, isn't it? Or else I won't finish it too quickly. Yes, My I'm- grandmother used to say. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That about short stories, she couldn't bear it. She got incredibly involved and then it ended. She hadn't had enough. It was a sort is, of greediness and hunger. Well, she's absolutely that was right. That's, that's, absolute, that's the biggest disadvantage. You, mm. you, you are not involved. You, know, you haven't got the reader over a space of real time, a long time. You haven't mm. got the five hours. Mm. Which, and, and a novelist, I think, does get away with more. I will persist with a novel for the first three or four chapters before mm. I pull it across the room. Um, yes. Whereas with a story, I think you just it's the second sentence. Yes. A bit like films, once they've got you sitting in the dark, you'll, you'll sit there, and there's a certain mm. amount of necessary... You know, they're allowed longer and boredom. It's, it's, it's good. I like it in a novel now and then, that patch, you know, because mm. you're... I think you put your critical, critical side to sleep, rather, reading a novel. What you want is to be absorbed and lulled and sort of to go into it, to enter the imaginative space. And mm. stories don't really do that in the same way. I think they're more of a performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reader, too, there's more demanded of the reader, mm. in a way, because you're meeting them in a different way. The... I agree with you about a desire you could have to be somehow enraptured. Um, there's a very nice little story Colette tells about when she's a tiny child there'd be a thunderstorm, they're living in the Burgundian countryside, and her mother would rush into the little girl's bedroom and scoop her up and whiz her off upstairs. And this was Colette's first experience of being swept away, enraptured, mm. taken off. Mm. And she, I think it is she explicitly does make the connection with reading, um, mm. of being somehow kidnapped and yes. uh, seduced, isn't it? Yes. Really, a particular kind of Forgetting seduction. where you are. Yes. yes. So a good novel, I think, could give you that pleasure but it would have to be a good novel I don't read novels that are boring I don't even give them three chapters I give them ten pages and then they go across the room (laughs) Um, life is short and there are many books as I believe someone like Chaucer once remarked (laughs) (laughs) maybe there are more books now yes yes Chaucer was all right (laughs) Chaucer was great he he believed in stories and he believed in connected stories so um, yes I went back and reread Chaucer recently thought, yeah, the boy has talent. He really has talent. <laughs> but he didn't have as much to read. I mean, what's been written since then? Mm. Well, you'd never get through it, huh? No, no. All right, let's, um, let's ask you to, um, yes, to say things or ask questions. And there's a, a roving mic. I always love that expression. You feel it's got wings. <laughs> it's going to fly through the air. So you have to put your hands up, don't you, really, if you want to say something. Here's a, here's a person here. Um, I've been reading some articles lately um, about the trend in popular literature and TV drama and so on for heroines that um, are very cold, mentally disturbed, Borgen and so on, um, or uh, have been abused. 
um, like in the girl with the, the dragon tattoo and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering what you think about those sorts of representations of heroines in more popular um, fiction and television drama and film versus representations of women in contemporary literature. I could tell you one thing I, I've noticed is that a new kind of porn got invented for executive women. It was marketed as black lace. And it was really interesting because it was all about quite high-flying women then being abused, mutilated, being given a really, really horrible time. And it was aimed squarely at the generation of young women who, who've got ambition, who might think about their own strength. And it was as though the culture as some kind of imaginative body thought, you know, we've, we've got to almost allow women to... We've got to cut them down to size. Got to cut them down to size, yeah. yes. And therefore they've got to be mutilated, abused, bruised, etc. And I think popular culture, it's, it's not dreamt up by some sort of demon in a castle on a hill, but there's, a, I think, sometimes a collective... Anxiety yeah. about uh, what's happened to women and our greater chances of joyfulness and creativity and strength. So that's that's how I see it. I remember Granta magazine. It never used to publish women at all. The only women who ever got published in Granta were women who'd been sexually abused and could write rather beautifully. And then from time to time, you'd, you'd have one of these memoirs featured in Granta. And no one ever commented on this. It was completely normal. That, that's, that that was the situation. Well, those times have changed, but I think in, in, in popular culture we're being given that kind of undertow. What, what do you think? Yes, it's interesting. Um, this story, I keep talking about the one I've been... I'm, no, I'm, I'm in it you. right up to ten minutes before this. I'm still doing the last draft, but it's a... It's a, it, it's a woman making a cake for her daughter. Um, and again, this whole mother thing, I suppose, but um, the, the desire to give advice, it's not that, or things that you've noticed. Ambition, is it allowed? Is it, is it allowable in a woman even now? Um, and if there is a desire for a man and woman to live together, um, and maybe with children, maybe without, is it possible? Um, and if they're both ambitious, if both have ambitions, that's the great unsaid at the moment. Who's is going to come for, You know, who's who's going to knuckle under and who, who's not? It's it's a sort of it, it's, is ambition still seen as an unwomanly attribute? In some circles, in some ways, I think it is. Because yeah, there's I want lip to be... service always, isn't there? You know, there's a kind of what I call shoulder pads feminism about that. Hey, you can storm the city and wear your shoulder pads and. Hey, you know, you can earn lots of money. Well, but as long as you're very, very nice, <laughs> and <laughs> and you give someone a cupcake, this is a, it. Seems that that was the other mm. thing about this story. You know, the default position at the moment: make your own business, set your own business up, making cupcakes. Yes. Yeah. But it seems to me that's about a recession, and um, I think Partly, often except in lots of these novels. No, no, the novels that used to be about women who managed to have children and a good job, and. They'd be realistic. They'd, they'd see that the work world was not particularly friendly to also spending time at your business. So the, the the compromise would always be setting up some sort of home business, you know, involving jam um, mm. and making a fortune from it, and marketing mm. it right. It was, oh, I don't know. Was, we still haven't got there yet. You know, we, we haven't worked out the balance yet. 
I just thought I, it would I'm by just now. interested. What advice would you give to young women now? Because I found my, she was going to ask No, 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 no. It's because of this story, <laughs> and I, it's this awful urge to sort of hand something on. But maybe what what do you what does one know? The only thing I could think of was, um, I think the, the only piece of advice in this story is uh, to wish wish your daughter the love of a good woman, the love of a good man or woman, um, and never to say yes unless you like the way they smell. Um, <laughs> And that they have integrity, but that comes next. You know, but the smells, that's, that's the only sort of practical piece of advice I can think of. Mm. I, I think I'd, I'd hope for young women that they find other people to talk to, which might mean their own friends, but it might also mean people older than them, and that they'd feel not afraid to speak of uh, what they think and feel, because they with luck might feel there's people there who want to cherish them and listen. That, that's what I would really hope for them, I think, yeah. I think, this, I think they are, the, the, young, the, um, the younger women now are talking much more open, well, and, yes. the, and the men, actually, yes. hearing together. It's much more free and open between the, mm. the sexes, I think. It's much more friendly. Yeah, there's a real yeah. dialogue and yeah. it's, yeah. But you, you with your, and sorry, yes, your sorry. <laughs> I'm really intrigued with the, the question um, that was previously asked because when we start when you started speaking, it was about um, writing out of the realm of domesticity and almost not a, an apology for that, but a recognition that that might be perceived as boring or, or banal, and that there is this swing, and I notice that particularly in the literature of young adolescents toward um, women who have been abused or traumatized, and that that is a way of, of marking a new space for literature for females, or literature of the female experience. Um, and when you're referencing Angela Carter, I'm really thinking about how, how we move forward, or, or what space or potentiality is opened up for writing out of the female experience, not necessarily limited to the female voice. Um, and what, what possibilities you see toward honoring um, the domestic realm that doesn't need to perhaps involve intensive trauma? The thing is, you know, the, the domestic realm is a brilliant realm to write about, that's the point. It gets trashed by people who don't think enough. The domestic realm is where amazing things go on. It could be love, it could be desire, it could be childbirth, it could be hatred, it could be sexual abuse, it could be murder. Thrillers are very good at that. You know, you, you get the, the creepy house with the cracked window panes and the cellar and the... And we all know something awful is going to happen and we're all so excited and thrilled. And that goes back to the 18th century. The Gothic absolutely knew about the haunted house. Freud calls it, you know, the unheimlich home. So I think the domestic will go on flourishing. It's just from time to time it gets lined up with women, domesticity, and something called femininity, and something that's therefore called kind of boring. Except but by silly people. Yes. <laughs> it's a great resource for us as writers, I think. But Updike is domestic, mm. and, and yeah. he doesn't get... But he's a, a man, you see. It's worse to be a woman writing about the domestic. But I also think. I found when I did a book tour in the States, there wasn't the same... There wasn't the same... Um, 
animus against the domestic. Mm. Men and male and female writers were both, you know, the domestic realm is just seen as fine. That's that's okay. They'll write about yeah. it. I mean, it's I don't. And then I started thinking, what is domestic? I mean, does it mean it's indoors? Have you got to set things outside in order to be, you know, really sort of light bonfires and be a pioneer to have real life, you know? Has it I got think to be the, the domestic road? gets lined up with the body of the mother. And you made a joke earlier that everybody laughed at, saying we've all got to get away from our mothers. So I think, you know, the mother does get almost identified with the house. <laughs> and we've all got to leave home and go on our quests, yeah. men and women both. And we have very ambivalent feelings about our mothers. It's yeah. just unfortunate, but we do. I always want to just love mine, but how can I? I can't. So, you know, the house um, hasn't got a chance, really. Except that, as, as writers, we know it's this fabulous site that we, maybe we leave it to become writers, and then we come back to it and look at it, and we make up stories about what's going on in it. Yeah. And I think, in answer to that question, young writers are doing that, men and women both. Well, yes, I, with this story I've been trying to finish, um, it is about motherhood and daughters and so on, I mm. think, but it's, it, I, I, I um, yesterday found myself at a counter waiting and there was a copy of magazines, there was one called Psychologies, with, and it was all about mothers, and there was a sort of questionnaire, what, which of these mothers are you? Um, <laughs> toxic mother, controlling mother, blah, 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 oh my God, and I was reading this and thinking, ah, and then it was... If you did this, you were, it was actually an act of aggression. You're saying it's an act of love? No. When your mother says, take this shawl, no. It's an act of aggression. She thinks you should wear red and you're... You know, I, I don't know. It, it just drove me... I, I went... <laughs> you left. <laughs> I, went my, my, I knew my daughter. She buys it. And I said, have you seen that one on mothers? Oh, I didn't show you that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, God, I hope this story isn't an act of aggression. I, 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 sort of, you know, I, I don't mean it to be. But, uh, it's not but then, up to you to say. <laughs> She'll tell you. Up, but that's the thing. I said, it's very peculiar being in the middle because I also, my mother's alive and I've got a mother, you know. So as a daughter, I'm reading, oh, yes, yeah, she was a toxic... Blah, 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 blah. So it's, it's, it's peculiar, you know. But there's got to be some... We don't suddenly stop, stop living when we have a... Ba- you, you, there's got, there's, someone's got to make sense of it. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, apropos of what we've been talking about and moving away from literature, do you think that there's a contempt in popular culture for motherhood, wifehood, nurturing, um, almost a, dis- a disgust for these things that, that, that fuels us or disturbs us? I think it's all very contradictory and conflicted. That's, that's how I see it. That I think on, in one way mothers are very sentimentalised and they're held up as selfless heroines and they're fated once a year on Mother's Day with big pink cards and pink balloons and stuff. And then the rest of the year they're expected just, you know, kind of get on with it. And I think they are sometimes despised and put down. But, when but then I think then mothers are... You know, they are making popular culture and they are very involved in making art and very, very able and strong about saying how a mother sees the world. I think the voice of the mother does get heard now. What do you think? I was thinking of um, the biography of Colette, where mm. at that point when her mother, Sido, she'd been so close to her, mm. and then her mother's dying and she's getting letters. 
yes. those points from her. And, and she really should go and visit her, and she just doesn't. Yes. For months and months and months. Then her yes. mother dies, and she hasn't seen her. Mm. And she doesn't and then, go to the funeral, either. She doesn't go to the funeral, <laughs> no. and it's, it's interesting. But then she writes this wonderful book about her mother, Sido's mm. house. And, mm. yeah. I think what it's, Colette does, and in, in Sido's house is one beautiful book, and another one is Break of Day, mm which starts with Sido refusing to come and see her daughter. She's been invited to Paris to come and yes. see her daughter. But she writes back, Colette says, saying, I can't come because my cactus is about to flower. And it only flowers <laughs> once every four years. And yes. mwah, you're my daughter. <laughs> and Colette's very proud of her for saying this. Mm-hmm. And um, the biographer, Judith Thurman, says that it wasn't quite like that in real life. But of course, it's art. It's a, mm-hmm. a beautiful story. Yeah. So um, I think Colette used her mother as a muse I, I think Sido was a fantastic muse for Colette, and I think she idealised her and sometimes sentimentalised her. And Colette is a mother, of course. That's was very interesting because she had this baby, <laughs> but, and and um, then she she sort of bought an English nanny and stuck her in Brittany somewhere mm. in a, 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 a in a castle. In a cold chateau. Yes, and so this child and the the nanny were mm. sort of locked together, not mm. very happily, as far as one yes. can tell. And Colette just ignored her. Yeah. When but she wrote every few rapturously months. about my child, my belle gazou. Yeah, you know, she's so beautiful and she leaps across the beach. And, but she didn't oh. exactly cramp her style. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so know, maybe so it's hard to tell the truth. Mm. Maybe it's hard to tell the truth. And the truth keeps changing, doesn't it? So we have to keep writing stories. But also, maybe, <laughs> maybe when people get to the stage where their children are older, if they've been trying to tell the truth, they're just so pleased that they've don't have to sort of carry on struggling and not mentioning this and not treading on... They, they just say, oh, phew. And, you know, and they, they join the ranks of the free again and mm. they, they don't ever want to think about that again. Except, it, Helen, it doesn't work, does it? Because you've got a fantastic story here about a grandmother, a daughter and her daughter all in the same house and the grandmother's slagging off the mother and the mother's slagging <laughs> off the daughter and the daughter's saying to the mother, I can't stand it, why can't you get on and be nice? And they're all going hurly-burly, hurly-burly. It's really funny. So that, for me, was a beautiful example of how the domestic can contain just not gothic cruelty or sentimentality, but the most fantastic comedy. <laughs> You've got such an ear for um, this, these cutting remarks people make. It's, it's a wonderful story. Thank you. Thank you. We've, we've heard quite a lot... Um, in the press about male writers and how they struggle with domesticity and their relationships and perhaps you have to get out of your marriage to write. I wondered if um, how you'd manage to juggle writing with personal life. And if it I don't know how anyone gets... manages to write when they live with other people, quite honestly. Mm. I don't know. Mm. I Do can't write. It's very, very I hard. I live on my own. I, mm. I have to go away and be on my own to write. And I love, I love people very much and love to be with them. Me too. And it's a very important part of life, the sensuality and lustfulness and joy of all that desire and cooking for people. I, I like to be on my own all day. I'm a part-time hermit, and then I like to go and party at night. That's how I do it. I split myself. But it isn't really a split. It gets joined up. I think it's hard... How can you write with someone else in the house? Their needs are kind of bombarding the walls somehow. It may be not true, but you feel they are somehow. I've talked to other writers about this, and um, oh, American, uh, much older novelists actually, women novelists, who said when they've worked alongside or maybe have a husband who also writes, and 
but the, the very fact of someone saying, would you like some soup, can just finish it off. You know, you just, you're just you waiting for them to say, and you think, don't mention soup. And, and, and it, it just, no, there's, there's nothing like the luxury of being uninterrupted mm. for a while and not, mm. having to, not having to think about anybody else just yes. for a, a, a while. Yeah. Um, it's, it's difficult, and I thought maybe that's partly the story thing. A lot of the work of a story is thinking about it. it's a long gestation, and then the actual writing isn't doesn't tend to take terribly long. Mm. Um, and during that time, I'm no, I just think I'm, I turn off on other people, and it's 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 quite harmful. You know, you have mm. to you have to sort of say I'll be all right by the tenth, but until then, nothing gets done, and I don't you know mm. fulfil my usual. Mm. I don't know what. I think it's something to do also with. A- with how the human mind works because I think when you're writing you, you let go of the, the normal conscious daily ego I think you need to to kind of encounter language and the unconscious mm. and the imagination so you're kind of dissolved and floating around in a mad way and you can't therefore be the same person who'd put the washing on or indeed cook dinner for your beloved friends or I mean, think about other people you're, you're not mm. there that's mm. the point so mm. it's easier to do that on your own because you just can let go and feel sort of safe to do that and I think you collect yourself back in when you become the self that wants to cook supper in. And maybe, you see, that's the thing as well with um, male writers, you were saying female writers, this, this whole split, but maybe it's easier. Well, maybe it's easier for a man, though, to say, oh, but, well, it's really boring, <laughs> um, childcare. Or, you know, it's not, he, he won't get stoned, he won't get told he's a terrible father because it's seen as possibly, you know, but if a woman says that, I do think she comes in for a bit more flack. Um, but, sorry? No, no. It's meant to be part of her crown, you know, finding all that wonderful. But, mm. but I, th- I think probably, you know, if you've had those experiences of motherhood, which means an alertness to the other, it, it could be very hard to uh, not operate like that even if you're not required to be that so you know if your lovely daughter your 18 year old daughter was in the house or in the garden shed or wherever you you still might find it hard to to cut off and be ruthlessly the artist it's better to find another room if you can yeah yes. that's because but... that's been your experience I mean, I don't think it's necessarily innate or essential I would really be against that. I mean, I think men can look after children just as well as women can. Yeah, and that's a, the ground of my feminism, is that men and women can share childcare, and mm. it's really, really important. It's whether they want to. Mm. Yeah, I mean, You can't that's make another. people want something. Yeah. Oh, I do in my fiction, though. That's the point. <laughs> oh, what a relief. <laughs> I can make them want anything. <laughs> I was looking forward to hearing more about Michelle's new book, why she chose the time period that you've chosen, um, and what you're exploring in that, because I haven't had the opportunity yet to read it, but it's hopefully on the horizon. So can you tell us more about where you're going or where you went with this and where you're going thereafter? Yes, and also, um, when we talked about this novel... (laughs) Um, and you were describing it a little to me, and I hadn't read it at that point. Um, I said, well, it sounds like that film Le Corbeau, 
which was a wartime film of Clouseau, and, and you, you hadn't... Have you, I hadn't did seen you watch it. it? I sent you the DVD, but have you seen it now? No, I haven't. No. Oh, okay. um, I, I will, um, but I haven't got the equipment at the moment. I didn't like to tell no, you. I'm sorry. I thought I'd hurt oh, your feelings. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. But it was, a, it was it's just about small-town um, nastiness and, and stories yes. told and anonymous yes. notes. And that's very much the connection, And the, the wartime, and it was, seemed for to be us, to do with informers. Yeah. That's right. For us tonight, the, the connection's about... Mm-hmm. This new novel is very much about stories and how they they can corrupt or damage or link people. And it was inspired just by an artist's house that I happened to visit in northwest France, purely by accident, and got very involved in thinking about what might have gone on there in the past because of that thing we were saying about the domestic and how houses can be haunted. And the whole thing came out of that, very much fueled by the fact that my parents had both died, my French grandparents were dead, but certain stories about the war had resurfaced for me and I'd had a new take on them. And I'd realised that the life of my family in occupied France had been far more complicated and I think compromised than I had known as a child or wanted to know as a child. And that's partly what the book's about is how much do we, can we bear to know about, about the past in our own families. Well, that's where you'd need a novel, of course, because Perhaps, that's how yes. the versions of yourself and, and your story mm. change over a life. How people in their eighties, yeah. they can still find, and they think, oh, and there's a new piece of information, and it shifts the whole pattern of how they see what their lives have been to that point. And yes. So I imagine that that was. It's very it. much an investigation of what, what memoir what time is scale as a form. Is it? it's, it's, well, it all happens in. It's difficult to say. It happens in a place called the imagination, but there are these different voices of the different witnesses mm-hmm. about a central event. So I suppose there's. It starts at about 1930, you could say ends in about 1946. Mm. And the different voices are trying to understand what might have happened mm. to a bunch of people in a particular village in northwest France. And it's looking very much at storytelling as an art form and therefore how it links with memoir, which is also an art form. About, you know, you leave things out, you embroider things, you make things up, you make yourself look better. Mm. You know, I am the heroine of my story, etc. So I've, I've gone back to the landscape of Daughters of the House. It's a kind of reprise. But I didn't choose to. I just felt impelled to. Um, so I won't tell you any more about it, because then why would you need to buy, buy it? it? <laughs> Hi there. Um, I was just wondering, well, we've been talking a lot about women's writing in terms of domesticity and motherhood and very much kind of personal and private concerns. And I was wondering whether you kind of thought whether there was more of a, a space that needed to be opened up in women's literature for talking about women in, in terms of more public uh, concerns in political life or at work or even just in the pub, you know, just as women as more kind of public figures and having relationships still with each other and um, but using the public arena as, as more of a kind of space to explore those relationships. I think we both do that really. I, I think it's really interesting to write about work. I think it's a fascinating subject. So that's very mm. much about not always the domestic place. Um, but not just in fiction, in, in life, it still is a, a vexed area. If, if women do have children, it's not, it, it's not completely simple to carry on in the 
in, in the same way. That, that, that's, that's the uncomfortable area that I think before children, one doesn't, you just don't think, you just think it's going to, it'll just be done differently by the time I get there. Mm. And then, the, the, you know, it's, it's still not been, there, that's why we carry on having to read these articles with, you know, which make us sigh. <laughs> Oh, how does she combine it? How does she do it? Oh, it, it, it's, it's not been sorted out. I'm very interested in politics and growing up as a young mm. woman in the 70s, you know, there was a politics of family and of relationships and of sex, very, very different from the kind of awful stuff that's blathered now by the Daily Mail women's pages. So there was a connection that was made between what's called the domestic and what's called the outer world. I mean, they're much more split at the moment. Mm. Uh, we were trying to make connections all the time that united them. You know, men perhaps connected the two a lot, but so did women, because most women have to work. I mean, it's only middle-class women of a certain income who could even dream of childcare. So I'm really interested as a person with socialist politics and feminist politics with how we talk about that world that the home connects to so intimately, but is seen as separate. And that's why in, e in ignorance, I mean, I, I was interested in the position of the, the Jewish people in my novel who are socialists and who are struggling. You know, the, one of them is that she's going out to work as a washerwoman, so her life is confined by the domestic, but she knows perfectly well that as a Jewish person and as a socialist, she has an existence in the world. And it's crucial to know that because it's about, are you gonna save yourself and your compatriots? Are you, you know, what, what is it to resist? So at certain moments, that, that has to be there as, as part of a novel. It, it's not, I think, that, I, I think the whole conception of the domestic is, is constructed all the time. And at the moment, in a recession, in a reactionary time, it's all about the home as this little suburban sanctuary full of cupcakes and free skirts. Well, it, it doesn't have to be seen like that, you know, and a novel can explore that. is slightly mal apropos suddenly now because the what drew my attention was something that you said Michelle about your own book but it connected with where you both began talking about the domestic my mind was casting itself back to a fabulous interview with Tessa Hadley last year I think it was in the Guardian um, on the publication of her novel in which I think she was more eloquent about the domestic than I've ever heard anybody be, which is, she said, you know, look, the problem with this is that if you try to summarise this, and come up with a summary of it, and you'll lose all the life. And how, what she was, what she was uh, setting out was that here is a, an opportunity. The so-called domestic is in fact not something which is necessarily just horribly, horribly confined and confining. Was actually a universe in its own right as well, and she was very interesting about this. If you try to to conceptualise it, to abstract it, it loses its life, it loses its vitality, it loses its evocative power, and so on. And uh, the reference to ignorance um, that came up. You were asked a question about what this novel is about, 
And in a way, having read, I've actually read the novel, um, it's impossible actually to say what it's about in a conceptualized way. <laughs> because Tessa Hadley says, the evocative power of domestic situations, there are a lot of domestic situations in this, and the book ends in an astonishing chapter which is set in the domestic. I mean, it is mind-blowing, um, set in, in a domestic scene. Um, I think there's a kind of maybe collective kind of blindness about how extraordinarily alive, in a very troubling way, no doubt, but how extraordinarily alive and promisingly alive domestic scenes are for old dom or, or domestic experience, maybe, for writers to explore and represent in their very different ways. Yes, I, I think Tessa Hadley is very interesting on, on this area, yeah. generally, and I remember some fr something she wrote. Um, she said that, uh, on the whole, women writers who've been allowed to join the tradition and, and be published um, they've preferred to reflect the experience of SKPs. <laughs> they've, um, they've, they've gone out and been free in the world with the men. And they've just, very tactfully, not mentioned all that. I think she had a point. That, mm. But you're, you're reclaiming it, Michelle. <laughs> yes, I, I like to think about the SKPs and I like to think about the domestic because I think they're very, very interconnected. I don't um, think necessarily the domestics are trapped anyway. No, no. The, 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 the skylight, if you, if you had a house, lots of us live in flats, but it opens to the stars. But it's, and it's the sentimentality. I think it's, mm, it's, it's people that. not being truthful about... They're, they're mm. just not being truthful. I was, I was comparing... Like, during this cake story I keep going on about, I was looking at a cookbook for children from the 70s, <laughs> which was called something like... Oh, it's so boring, but let's get on with it. You know, it, it said, we, if you're like us, you're ground down by the tedium of uh, cooking for small children who spit it up. Uh, well, here's a list of, you know. And then I, I looked at a, a cookbook for children written now, which was, it could have been for another species. It was all about, you know, cutting the, making traffic lights, uh, making your children's plate, you know, getting the red vegetables and the green and the yellow and organising it so they'll find it really fun. And isn't this fun for you to do? And you think, oh my God, that's, it's, it's become a sort of desperate housewife. I don't know. Mm. Oh. It seemed to me regressive, you know. But great for a story, you see. <laughs> mm. Funnily enough, I have also just written a story about a cake. I've written a story about Madeleines. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. So I think there's some deep telepathic communion between us. I make them, do you? Do you make them? Yes, I do. Yes, and yes. you always have that little... Well, sometimes. Yes. Sometimes they are sunk. Oh, well. <laughs> hmm. Well, I think we might um, end it on cakes. Looking forward very much to reading stories but in the meantime while well, we have to wait we have a bunch of fives here and ignorance and um, all the other books by both Michelle and Helen um, please join me in saying a very very warm thank you to Helen and Michelle Roberts for a fascinating talk thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event for more visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.